Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The hallmark of David Fulkert's Landau's work at Deutsche Bank is to have a group of economists, people that battle, decide, and then do acute published research. John Farrell, no exception here in the last couple of weeks, is Mr. Hooper and Mr. Lozetti have looked at the movement that we will see and particularly the rate and rates of change that we will see. John? Very happy to say that Matt joins us now, Tom. Matt Lozetti of Deutsche Bank. Matt, let's start there. The workout going into the weekend with Peter Hooper. The risk that this Fed needs to do more. This argument that we still experience long and variable lags with policy. Matt, are they already behind the curve and how much more do they need to do? Sure. First, thanks so much for having me. Uh, certainly, we did argue that the Fed is behind the curve now. And I, I think that's mostly a, a byproduct of the rapid improvement we've seen, most importantly, on the labor market front. Uh, I think it's important to remember that as of June of last year, we were at 5.9% unemployment. So the unemployment rate has fallen by two percentage points basically over the past six months, but then very much so on, on inflation and in terms of the wage data that we've seen. So I think given the very rapid developments, the very rapid improvements that we've seen, uh, both on the labor market front and, and high inflation, uh, the idea that the Fed should be at their current policy setting, which is zero interest rates, still adding to the balance sheet at this point, with an economy that has satisfied uh, their dual mandate goals and very strong growth, there's, there's definitely a disconnect between those two things at the moment. You've put some numbers on the balance sheet reduction, $560 billion this year, a strong tilt towards bills, $1 trillion more in 2023. You also equate balance sheet reduction to interest rate hikes. The total drawdown of the balance sheet through the end of 23 amounts to somewhere between two and a half and three and a half, 25 basis point increases. Matt, can you help us understand whether that balance sheet reduction complements the rate hikes you were already calling for or replaces them? Sure. So I think the interesting thing from our own forecast is we've we brought uh, rate hikes forward uh, at the same time that we've, we're building in a faster drawdown of the balance sheet. So at this point, our, our baseline is that they hike rates four times this year. March, you know, given all the Fed communications, given the data, seems very, very likely in terms of liftoff at this point. Uh, and we've we've had four hikes in addition to that balance sheet uh, wind down that we've seen. I think there's been different views within the committee on this. We've heard from people uh, such as Mary Daly, Governor Waller, uh, Jim Bullard, all those officials who actually want to, I think, actively substitute doing more on the balance sheet and doing less on the on the front end. We haven't heard as much from Fed leadership <clears throat> chair Powell, John Williams on this, uh, Lael Brainerd. But but I, I anticipate that the rest of the com- committee will want to set the balance sheet, allow that financial condition tightening to happen as a result of that, and do what they need to on the front end. So not really actively substitute between the two but at least realize that both of them will be tightening financial conditions. Matt, why do you disagree with Peter Scheer, who says this could just be the Fed jawboning? So I, I think, you know, perhaps there is some part to that, but, but I think the, the economic reality is we have very easy financial conditions. Uh, the unemployment rate is below the Fed's view of Nehru. Inflation is well above target, and they expect it to remain well above target. Uh, and wage growth, inflation expectations, the broadening of inflation pressure suggest that the risk starts the upside on inflation. And so uh, in that environment, um, I think it'd be surprising simply for a central bank to, to jawbone their way towards tightening monetary policy. I think that actual tightening needs to take place uh, both via the front end, via policy rates, 
uh, and also via the balance sheets. And I expect that the Fed will deliver on that this year. And one reason why your research has been so original, Matt, is you try to game out the effect of quantitative tightening on markets, which has been a moving target and, frankly, has a lot of people questioning what the ramifications will be. How difficult was it when you came up with this call of two and a half to three and a half rate hikes by the end of 2023 that that would be the equivalent of what quantitative tightening would exact onto uh, the markets? Sure. I, I think it's very clearly an uncertain one. It's one that the Fed still grapples with. We, we hear in the minutes that I'm still discussing, discussing the effects both of QE and QT. Um, and so I, I, I would highlight first, I think that there are lots of uncertainty around this. But we do have a lot of research. We have the Fed-owned staff research from the board and, and some of the regional Feds. We've done a lot of our own work. Uh, and it uh, kind of interestingly and, and thankfully, I think, clusters around uh, a certain uh, range of estimates, which suggests that call it $650 billion, uh, give or take, uh, mm -hmm. of, of QT would tend to equate to one rate increase. And so the drawdown that we expect through the end of next year, we think is right. material uh, in terms of the tightening that it has, two and a half to three and a half rate hikes, as you mentioned. Matt, Fulkerts Landau and Peter Hooper have beaten into you a respect for history. Let's go back to Paul Volcker in 1979, where 50 basis points wasn't under debate. It was a major emergency, including an emergency October move, and they moved rates in four or five months from 10.5% out to 15.5% to break inflation. Now, that's not happening right now, but what is the price to the Greenspan credibility that's been earned over decades if we jump 50 beeps now, what do we lose? Sure. And if you go back to that episode and then, then even later, we had a change in the monetary regime looking at, at money supply rather than, than focusing on interest rates. And so there was a sense in which you needed to shock the system at that point to get inflation expectations back down and to break the inflation psychology. Here, uh, I, you know, we do think that 50 basis points move is, is possible at some point. Uh, at this point, it does not seem the most likely case for March, uh, from my perspective, at least for two reasons. Uh, one, from Fed officials, we, we are hearing from them, even the more hawkish members like, like Waller, not supporting Governor Waller, not supporting a 50 basis point hike at this point. But also, if you hear you know, certainly Chair Powell talk about uh, tightening policy at this point at his testimony last week, uh, he basically said we want to move from extremely accommodative to somewhat less accommodative. Uh, and officials are saying they want to do it in a way that really does not disrupt the labor market. And so I don't think you've seen a shift in communications or a shift in, in thinking or public thinking from the Fed, which suggests that they need to really actively tighten the monetary policy to rein in demand. Uh, I think possibly that that may change at some point. And, and that would change, I think, if we get clearer evidence that inflation is not coming back right. down this year, clear evidence that the labor market continues to tighten. Uh, and perhaps, you know, I think inflation expectations, if they right. were to continue to rise, could be a big part of that. I was going back and forth with Dr. Alarian at the University of Cambridge this morning, Matt, and we were talking about the extrapolation of all these markets, WIRP function and all that. Nobody in history cares about that. It didn't happen really until the Bloomberg game began, the parlor game began. So this is a Fed that's going to get on a path. Why can't they say we're going to raise 50 beeps and then we're going to sit on it? That's what they used to do. Why can't they do that again? Sure. So I, I think the idea of, of raising 50 basis points and then sitting on it is, is a difficult one, I think, one to communicate. Uh, the market reaction Agreed. to going 50 basis Fair. points and going 50 basis points in March, I think, will simply pull forward the entire tightening cycle and, and may actually reduce the flexibility and scope of what they could do moving forward. And so I, I think from that perspective, you know, a forward looking market 
will not take the Fed um, as saying we're going to pause from here and, and wait and see how, how things happen. We will see, I think, more significant tightening as a result of that. I, I think to your point, though, we are in a world where uh, forward guidance is, is curtailed. I think it's limited in its effectiveness. Um, and you know, looking back the past two tightening cycles, we had one where we had both where uh, the end point was pretty well known, the pace of rate hikes was well known, the starting point was very well known. And that dampened volatility, markets were able to, I think, very clearly anticipate and predict where the Fed was going. I think the, the most important point from my perspective about this cycle uh, is that, that it's going to be far less predictable. You know, we are talking about 50 basis point rate hikes. We are thinking of real scope for the Fed moving at every meeting. They're drawing down the balance sheet more aggressively. So this is something that we haven't seen in markets for, you know, for several decades in terms of the, the pace and the extent of tightening over a relatively short period. That final point there. It's the important one. Matt Lazzetti of Deutsche Bank. Matt, great work over the last few weeks. Great work always, but particularly the last week. The research has been outstanding. Matt Lazzetti of Deutsche Bank. Andrew Sheets is out of Brown University, staggered into Morgan Stanley one day, and everybody leaned forward. He's the kind of guy who writes a 14-page research report and has 14 people writing with it. He coalesces in all of the Morgan Stanley view worldwide, from Mike Wilson over to economics and Ellen Zettner, Ming Dai, and the rest of them. John, what's great here is his mathiness gives you a really interesting opinion. Andrew Sheets is with us right now. Andrew, great to catch up with you, sir. Why is this the year? where the index starts to struggle. Yeah, great. It's great to be with you. I think you have a couple of factors that are coming together that, that we think will drive U.S. index underperformance. And, and a lot of that goes back to the point that Lisa made about real yields, that, that real yields did not rise last year. That was a surprise given how strong the recovery was, the rise of inflation. We think that real yields start to rise this year, and that real yield it rises both more pronounced in the U.S. and the U.S. market is more sensitive to it. So we do think U.S. earnings will be relatively strong. We think the U.S. economy this year will be relatively solid, but the valuations need to come down like they've come down in a lot of other markets. And we think that leads the U.S. to underperform. Andrew, this is an important distinction. Is the underperformance driven by Fed policy or is it driven by margin compression from the inflation that we're seeing from wages and other input costs? Yeah, thanks. We, we think it's more by Fed policy or more specifically by the market pricing in a more realistic, real interest rate, a more realistic discount rate over time. On the margin front, it, it will definitely impact a lot of individual companies. It will definitely drive idiosyncratic risk for companies that do not have pricing power. But for overall earnings this year, you know, our estimates are, are kind of near consensus, a little bit above consensus. Mm -hmm. So you know, from that basis, it's hard for us to argue that that margin disappointment at an overall index level is, is the big problem. Instead, it's it's more the valuation and the discount rate. And Regina Martin-Adams at Bloomberg Intelligence Equities just publishes on this, and she says margin scrutiny in the United States is front and center. Your lead sentence is you're away from American stocks and you're towards Europe, I believe, and Japan stocks as well. Won't they have the same margin scrutiny, the same margin pressure? Well, so it's it's fair that I think some of the issues are, are universal, rising commodity prices, tighter labor markets. But I think two factors are, are at work. First, in aggregate, we are you know less worried about that margin compression overall. That we still have a very strong nominal GDP growth globally next year. We think nominal GDP in 
in both the U.S. and Europe is six, seven percent. That's a, that's a pretty strong revenue backdrop that should be somewhat supportive of margins. And then also, I think especially for Europe, you know, my colleague Graham Secker, who, who's our European equity strategist, notes that consensus expectations there just look very low. That that the market is not expecting much out of European companies, which is. Understandable, European earnings have disappointed for a long period of time, but we think that bar is so low that it's just going to be very easy to clear, even if our growth expectations are a little short of what we think. Andrew, I could take that comment, those few comments, and just look back maybe five, ten years, and they just sound like the same comments I've heard over the last decade when it comes to Europe. Andrew, you know that. What's new about this? Sure. So you're absolutely right. You know, Europe has underperformed for a long period of time. I think it's important for us to step back and think about why it has underperformed. It's it's not that the U.S. has outperformed because the Fed has been active. I mean, the ECB has been buying bonds. The, the Bank of Japan has been active in the market. The reason the U.S. market has outperformed has been because it's had superior earnings growth, or at least that's been a big part of the story. I think something that we think is is different this time in Europe is we think the earnings can actually come through, that we think we have a much stronger commodity environment, which helps Europe. We think we have a stronger economic recovery in Europe with a very strong consumer. I think you have a better political backdrop in Europe than you've had at, at many points over the last five years. And you have a much better relative valuation argument of Europe relative to other regions, especially the U.S., than you've had over a lot of the last decade. So kind of putting all those factors together, that's why we think it can ultimately do what it, what it hasn't really done much over the last 20 years and outperform. If there is a dovish surprise from the Federal Reserve, if they see the move in real rates, if they see the repricing and they say, wait a second, we're perhaps getting a little ahead of ourselves and they push back next week, if they push back in the months to come, is that a risks case to your scenario? Do you see that reversing this trade and actually making U.S. equities more attractive? Yeah, thanks. I think that's fair. I, I think if, if the Fed does blink, as uh, maybe, that's, maybe as you describe, I, I think that would make investors, you know, more constructive towards towards U.S. assets. Um, it would probably weaken the dollar, and, and we have moved to a neutral dollar stance. But look, I mean, the part about that that's interesting is can the Fed do that credibly, right? Because we, we still we're still in a window where inflation hasn't come down yet, where inflation is still quite high. And so, you know, if, if the Fed is more dovish, but the market thinks that it's too soon for the Fed to make that pivot and that causes longer end yields to rise, the market thinks that, that the Fed's just going to have to catch up and do more later, that might not necessarily be, be, be good either. So, you know, I do think that the Fed is probably a tougher policy predicament than the ECB or the Bank of Japan. And, and that's one of the reasons why we think equities in those markets can ultimately outperform this year. Interesting. That's the call. Andrew Sheets, thank you, sir, of Morgan Stanley. Enjoyed the read over the last few weeks coming from the team and all of their research. Right now, Leslie Falcone has to deal with this senior fixed income strategist for the Americas at UBS. We're thrilled she could join us uh, this morning. Leslie, we go from Morgan Stanley and, as Lisa mentioned, the resurrection, and maybe Shanali mentioned the resurrection of fixed income as well. Right now, I think it's price down, yield up. That's my analysis. Where are you on duration? Well, I mean, we've been bearish for quite some time, and I think what we're seeing right now in terms of interest rates, we thought we would see in the fourth quarter of 21. And I think the key is that this is being driven by a rise in real rates. I mean, September yield was at 170 back on November 23rd or 24th. 
And I think it's important to remember that also, you know, we, we do think interest rates are going to rise, but you know, now that we get towards that 2% and given the bearish indicators that the market is already pricing in, whether it's QT, the Fed tapering, you know, and you know, new risk into the marketplace as we enter a new year, you're going to pause for, for a bit. And we don't think over the longer term, it's necessarily a bad thing to start average costing here. So this is the concern that some people have, including Peter Scheer, that perhaps the Fed is just jawboning, trying to get people to move, and then they won't actually have to make the moves that would then potentially break the market should they get to a certain point, according to Jim Bianco. Where do you stand on this point? I mean, do you think the Fed cannot come through with the rate hikes currently priced into the market? Well, the market's pricing in, you know, about four rate hikes, and we're probably about three to four as well. We also think that they're going to start QT as sort of a process to continuously tighten financial conditions. I mean, but we definitely lean towards the the longer type of, you know, uh, financial conditions tightening. We think the trauma rate goes higher. We don't think it's going to be a fast and done. You know, the market going forward is only pricing in, you know, a few rate hikes in 2023. We think it extends out more. And, you know, we, we do think that there are probably three to four rate hikes this year, but, you know, going forward, I think it's going to be a little bit longer than what people are anticipating. Do you think that the market is underpricing the impact of QT? You know, I think I think that the, the risk to QT is it goes quicker and faster, right? So, or, or, or more or more faster, higher and faster. But when you think about what the primary markets were actually showing in terms of what they expected for QT, most of them really didn't even think it would happen until 2023. So I think the market is actually reacting quite well, given that they pushed it forward. You know, I known to know exactly where that sort of normalization will be in balance sheet or reserves. But I do think the market's fairly prepared for it. Leslie, thank you. As always, Leslie <laughs> Falconio of UBS Global Wealth Management. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer -peer conversation tonight at 9 p.m. And Mr. Rubenstein joins us at right now. Darren Walker, really interesting character here in a changing philanthropy, David. What did you learn from him on the new philanthropy? Well, Darren Walker is somebody who, as the head of the Ford Foundation, has, has as much impact on the philanthropic world as people who are worth billions of dollars giving away their own money, because he's really transformed a lot of philanthropy in what he's done at the Ford Foundation, and also by influencing <clears throat> a lot of other well-known philanthropists. Uh, David, what's important here is you do these peer-to-peer -peer conversations, and they never dovetail as nicely with the news as they do today. Darren Walker was at UBS. That's where he did some of his banking and maybe raised his first actual tangible wealth. And we see UBS today move Exxon out of their climate funds. The Ford Foundation and others, many that you are directly related to, are having the same discussions as well. What did you learn with, from Darren Walker about how to manage ESG in the new philanthropy? Well, for those who don't know Darren Walker, what he did is when he became the head of the Ford Foundation, he said, I'm going to basically focus the Ford Foundation on one principal thing inequality in our society. And so he got rid of a lot of the other things that the Ford Foundation did, but he also influenced other things like ESG and other areas other than inequality. So he's a transformative figure, came from poverty, uh, raised by a single mother in Texas, went to public schools, came to New York to be a, uh, a lawyer and then a banker. But ultimately, he decided life was more important if he would spend time doing, giving back to society, rose up, as you mentioned, uh, to be at the Rockefeller Foundation, now the Ford Foundation. And he really is a charismatic figure who I think influences almost everybody he comes in touch with because he's so passionate about the things he believes in. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody would say, 
that he had an impact on the UBS decision because he has an impact on so many things in the philanthropic world. David, I see a connective link between Darren Walker and your prior week's guest, Melody Hobson, basically in that career trajectory, in coming from poverty and actually coming to a place of incredible respect, power, and frankly, uh, monetary largesse. I'm curious whether their perspective on the modern American dream has changed in our new moment, whether it's more difficult for people to come from that type of background and get to the place where they find themselves today. It's an interesting question. Generally, uh, people would say, well, if you have um, Darren Walker on your show and you have Melody Hobson on your show, this shows how people are rising up from minority backgrounds and poverty. But they would say that actually the situation is probably worse than it's been before because the level of income inequality has gotten much worse as a result of COVID. And the number of people who are below the poverty line is actually increasing. So although you can see Melody Hobson, you can see Darren Walker, and they're great examples of people rising up from modest circumstances, the truth is they would say, and I would say as well, that probably the problem is worse than it's been in many, many years because of growing income inequality in the United States. And the chances of more and more Melody Hobsons and Darren Walkers are probably reduced. That's a, a, an unfortunate uh, an unfortunate take and one that I do hear a lot. I am wondering, David, dovetailing this into the corporate picture and from your position at the Carlyle Group, I'm wondering whether there's a similar type of worsening in the outlook of smaller companies, particularly in the face of some of the inflationary pressures and the supply chain disruptions, the labor shortages. We've heard about how some of the bigger companies have been more flexible in dealing with them and smaller ones are struggling more. What's been your on-the-ground experience of that? Well, we've become a tale of two cities, really, or a country of two cities, because uh, the large companies, the Carlisles of the world and the Microsofts and so forth, we're all doing reasonably well, uh, and our employees are doing reasonably well. But companies that have blue-collar workers, that have uneducated workers who don't have high school degrees or college degrees, people who have a lot of uh, companies have a lot of people that really um, are not well-paid, well-educated, they are really falling behind, and many of those people are being uh, laid off. Uh, because of COVID and other kinds of concerns uh, that, that some of those employers have. So the better known companies in the United States are actually prospering reasonably well. Clearly, uh, nothing's perfect, but they're doing reasonably well. I'm more worried about those people that are working at food trucks, at, at, uh, at Walmarts, at uh, uh, drugstores, or things like that. Many of these people are laid off relatively quickly. They don't have a lot to fall back on. So uh, yes, if you if you watch television and you watch business news, you'll see a lot of wealthy people talking about how good the economy is in some respects and how many um, billions of dollars certain people are making. But if you talk below that line, uh, I think we have some real challenges in the country. David, I must ask your observation of a new phrase, the new defensives, which are the huge big techs in their massive balance right. sheets. And we saw that at work yesterday with Microsoft with a $75 billion all-in transaction Tell us the power of the cash that these behemoths have. We've never seen anything like this. We've never had companies up until recent years that had cash hoards, if I use that phrase, um, of $100 billion or more. <clears throat> so Microsoft, I think, has about $150 billion of cash. So they're using for this transaction maybe half of that. But Google um, uh, has enormous amounts of cash as well. So does Facebook. Obviously, Apple has an enormous amount of cash. We've never seen anything like that in corporate America before. And I think the companies are increasingly under, under pressure to do something with it, either give it back to the shareholders through dividends, which they're often reluctant to do, or, or to make acquisitions. So I think you're going to see much more of this cash used because I think regulators increasingly are saying and members of Congress, what do you need all that cash for? 
If you right. if you have that much cash, maybe you're charging too much. Maybe you're a little bit uh, uh, too strong. Is it a Silicon Valley conceit? Is it a conceit of a generation behind you? Well, there are a lot of people who work in Silicon Valley, and I like a lot of those people who feel that they are masters of the universe. Yeah. To use a phrase yeah. that we all uh, know. And you have that much cash. If you've got $150 billion of cash in the bank, you right. can pretty much think you can do anything. So <clears throat> I, I think humility is not the greatest uh, virtue of some people no. um, in, in some parts of Silicon Valley. We've got to leave it there. David Rubenstein, master of the universe and a member of Carlisle, and of course, his interviews peer-to-peer -peer on Bloomberg with Darren Walker. Look for that tonight. Very interesting setup. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.